Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 61st of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, my guest is historian Deepesh Chakravarti. You can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube Live channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls recorded as podcasts on podbean.com or Spotify or Apple Podcasts, anywhere that you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June 8th, 2020, there are 7,076,187 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 6,703,686 cases reported as of Friday. As of uh, today, 1,954,936 of those cases are in the United States, and that's up from 1,885,197 cases Friday. There are now a total of 110,876 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19, and that's up from 108,708 deaths reported as of Friday. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story every day, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Family Remembers 12-Year-Old Boy Who Died from COVID-19, Absolutely Heartbroken, We Are Trying to Stay Strong. This is written by Laura Rodriguez Presa, published in the Chicago Tribune, May 20th. Standing six feet apart and wearing face masks, Ernesto Guzman's teachers bid him farewell with white roses as his family drove past his elementary school on their way to the cemetery. Ernesto is the youngest person in Cook County to die from COVID-19. He was 12. Our hearts remain broken for Ernesto and his family. Acero Marquez teachers, scholars, staff, and families continue to mourn with Ernesto's family. We're thankful for the opportunity to be a part of Ernesto's remembrance. His spirit fills us with love and only fuels our commitment to service. He is our light now. This is from a, a statement from the Acero Marquez Elementary School. Nearly 20 teachers and school staff members waited for the procession that briefly stopped in front of the school. As part of a symbolic goodbye, a funeral home worker placed a cross with white flowers by the sidewalk. My little boy left, said his mother, Rosa Lara amid tears days after his death. Ernesto was six years old when he underwent his first surgery for a rare disorder that was steadily damaging the nerves in his arms and legs. Doctors told the family there was no cure and the young boy would endure at least six more surgeries as he fought the debilitating disease. He was very strong and kept positive, said his uncle and godfather, Sergio Lara. Ernesto hoped to get a job and buy a truck for his father, maybe make enough money so his mother could stop working. In the last few weeks, Ernesto's mother began having headaches and a fever and immediately sought out a testing site for COVID-19. She tested positive. Ernesto and others in her family were tested too, and the results came back positive for the boy, his older brother, and two nephews. Ernesto worried everyone the most. He had other health problems, including asthma, and struggled to leave his room at times. Nearly two weeks after he was tested, 
Ernesto died from pneumonia caused by the coronavirus. His other conditions were listed as contributing to his death. The boy's mother is absolutely heartbroken. We're trying to stay strong for her, Sergio Lara said. Ernesto was the baby of the family and a soul that kept our family close-knitted, Lara said. When we had family gatherings, everyone would go to his room to see him, especially the kids, because they knew he couldn't play with them. They would often drop off video games or his favorite food. He loved pizza, cheese sticks, and burritos with green salsa his mother made. More than anything, Lara said, Ernesto loved his nieces and nephews. Many of the photos shared by Lara show the boy carrying them as babies. The last time Lara saw his godson was on April 10th, when he stopped by the home. He loved his family and always wanted us to be together. Luis Vega remembered his younger brother as a bright young man with many hopes and aspirations. He was very caring and thoughtful of others, especially his family. He had many goals to accomplish in life. His main priorities were assisting his parents. Ernesto's faith seemed to grow stronger as his disease progressed, according to Lara, who was Ernesto's sponsor for First Communion last year. He had an image of our Divino Nino in his room. On a Facebook post, Tanya Vega shared a collage of family photos to commemorate her little brother. Your nephews will know the amazing person you were, she wrote. I promise you, please watch over us, Ernie. I know you aren't going to be suffering no more, and you're somewhere up there with Grandpa now. Before May 14th, the youngest COVID-19 victim in Cook County was a 19-year-old man from South Suburban Riverdale, according to the medical examiner's office. In March, public health officials said a nine-month-old boy from Chicago died after testing positive for COVID-19, but samples are still being tested to confirm the cause, the office said. In the hours after Ernesto died, Lara created a GoFundMe page to help the family with funeral expenses. He asked for $5,000. Within 24 hours, it had raised more than $24,500. Ernesto was such a sweetheart and so funny, friends of the family posted. He was a light wherever he went. Lara said the family was extremely grateful for the kind words and the support. It is a testament of the impact that Ernie had in this world, Lara said. But unfortunately, not even a million dollars will get him back to us. I'd like to turn to our discussion for today, and let me introduce my guest. I'm just thrilled he could make time for this discussion. Dipesh Chakrabarti is the Lawrence A. Kimpton Distinguished Service Professor of History, South Asian Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago. He's also the faculty director, among many other roles, of the University of Chicago Center in Delhi. He's a founding member of the Editorial Collective of Subaltern Studies, consulting editor of Critical Inquiry, and a founding editor of Postcolonial Studies. Chakrabarty is also the recipient of the 2014 Toynbee Foundation Prize for his contributions to global history. His most recent books, and his many publications, but the points of these, his most recent books are The Crises of Civilization, Exploring Global and Planetary Histories, published in 2018, and with Ranajit Dasgupta, Some Aspects of Labor History of Bengal in the 19th Century, Two Views, also published in 2018. Other publications include Rethinking Working Class History, Bengal, 1890 to 1940, and Provincializing Europe, Post-Colonial Thought and Historical Difference, a book that's been published in many, many languages. Dipesh Chakrabarti, thank you so much for making time to come on COVID Calls today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your program. So I'd like to start the way I've been at, um, with most of these calls, which is just to find out how you're doing, where you're calling in from, and what the situation is with the pandemic there. 
Well, I'm in Chicago. Um, been teaching online, just finished teaching. Uh, but actually, your story about Ernesto, talk about Ernesto, reminded me that I, my wife has a six-year-old niece in Calcutta, and we speak to her every morning on Skype. She's okay, um, but the situation in India is 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 bad and rapidly worsening. And um, I just heard today a bit of good news, which was that the numbers in our university hospital, which have been going up, are now going down. The Cook County, where I live and work, uh, has been one of the worst affected uh, counties in Chicago. Uh, and and as you know, the number of uh, actually the mortality uh, have fallen very unevenly and um, in a skewed manner on the African American and the Hispanic populations. So um, I'm, I'm I really. I was admiring your strategy or your the thought that you put into it, into the into the business of humanizing the story, because um, there are a lot of arguments I hear these days about herd immunity, and how if you don't find a vaccination, we should just carry on with the uh, disease infecting at least seventy percent of any population, uh, with obviously um, some casualties. On the, on the side, and while that kind of a logic, which I understand, has come from animal studies, animal management, um, it kind of makes sense at one level. At another level, the difficulty with thinking in that sort of way is that, that you tend not to remember that every loss is a deep loss for somebody. Um, and uh, I don't know how to combine the two kinds of thinking, how to care for every individual, but also um, if I were in charge of policy, I don't know how, how, how you, I would think. But sometimes sometimes policy speak sounds a little heartless mm-hmm. when, it, when it comes to that in, in that kind of language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hear that in India, I hear that sometimes here, you know, um, and it also often, yeah, so it comes from people who are either not themselves suffering or like medical people sometimes have seen so much suffering that right. they get a little inured. <laughs> but right. for people like yourself or myself who are uh, actually in the business of this everyday life uh, and thinking about the people around you, your students, your colleagues, your friends, your family, you can immediately empathize with another family's loss. Mm-hmm. So I just wish that society and people who are in charge of running societies, running polities, would try to keep up both kinds of thinking. Mm. Uh, you know, and and and, and uh, empathy is hard to keep up when the object of empathy is distant from your life. Yeah, I'm glad you. I'm glad you made that that point about the distance and that, and that has come through in so many of the obituaries that I've read, of course, that even as you try to understand the personal aspect and you try to, you're invited in through the obituary, which I think are often extremely personal. Yeah. You almost, you almost, you feel that you're almost intruding a little bit, but, but it's there and we, we work with them and we honor and, 
a constant theme in them is that the families can't get close. Uh, and so Indeed, this... Yeah. When they need to. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, and they can't say goodbye properly. Yeah. Uh, and and so, and some to of me, this... Of, yeah. I just going to say, some of the accounts of corona deaths from New York um, have been heartrending in those terms. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a very asocial death. Right. Then the person dying suffers uh, because because the, the the doctors and nurses are all wearing protective equipment. They can't actually physically touch you, mm -hmm. and uh, and they they're wearing glasses, and so you can't see their eyes. You can't actually, and you're you're often kind of uh, in a in a haze yourself because of the medication mm -hmm. that you're on. So it, it's. Yeah, when you read the accounts, some of the, I mean, it's been uneven. Some people have been to hospitals, come out, some people have stayed at home and been all right. So obviously, uh, it, also, it hasn't affected everybody with the same kind of violence. But some of the stories out of coming out of New York when the situation was really, really bad, and they were short of equipment, they were short of hospital beds and things, was heartrending. It was very hard to watch us read it. Let me let me get a status update from you also on the George Floyd protests as they may be playing out there in Chicago, Philadelphia over the weekend. It was an enormous outpouring. And even where I am in, in New Jersey, a lot of people out. So even small towns, but certainly big cities, we're seeing something I've never seen in my lifetime. How is it there? It's... Uh... It's been very impressive. I mean, there was a, I mean, initially, of course, there was, a, there was some violence and there was some actually looting in our neighborhood, uh, looting of shops and things. But the way it came into my life was, of course, the students were so both outraged and affected. And many of them joined the protests. And even those who couldn't or didn't, uh, because these are online classes, not everybody was in Chicago. Um, and some were actually overseas. Um, they were all affected, but their concentration was affected. Uh, they were all very sad, and um, it was so brazen what happened. I mean, it was unnecessary. It was heartless, but it was it was brazen. It was, uh, uh, and I think the the shock uh, that went through the community was palpable, even online. Uh, talking to people. So some of my graduate students and even undergraduate students who actually are in Chicago have been have joined the protests and the protests are I guess they're falling into a pattern now where you find big protests on weekends when people can actually join. But I also I also worry about what they will inevitably do when people know that this is the choice they're making uh, to the COVID numbers. Mm -hmm. Because uh, we'll probably see some bumps in, mm. in the COVID numbers. So because um, it's this complete contradiction in our lives now that human beings are social, <laughs> and and being social brings a sense of richness in our life. The, the virus wants us to be social, <laughs> and and <laughs> and yeah, so right. being social kind of <laughs> it's a it's a bizarre yeah. situation. It's really. We're experiencing something that we didn't evolve to cook with. Yeah. Because we evolved to be a social animal. Yeah, but, but 
but our enemy wants us to be social. Uh, and uh, so we kind of bracket, so when we protest, we kind of bracket the wider situation. Mm-hmm. And we have to. Mm-hmm. So we, we kind of go back to our life as it would have been if the virus weren't there. Uh, but without that, how do you protest? How do you actually make the impact of your protest felt? So I understand. So I'm just saying that we're in this weird situation uh, where the virus just wants bodies to be close. Mm-hmm. In the last few years, you know, that that the, there have been big protests and, and the Women's March, for example, or the Students' Climate sure. March, absolutely. Um, but there's been this sort of yeah. rhetoric around that saying, well, the march, the protest is passe. Those days are over. And this moment in the last week has shown me yeah. it's not the case. That people do feel no, called. And, and look at its global impact. Look at its global impact. Australians have just had their Black, Black Lives Matter marches. And, um, and it's really to do with the, the Aboriginal people there and the treatment they receive and, and the unusual number of deaths in custody. For Aboriginals in Australia. Young Aboriginals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in spite of, you know, more than 200 years, that, that's been the situation. Mm. It has a huge impact in India emotionally. I, I, I see music and other kinds of protest music and songs coming out of India mm. um, saying if Americans can protest injustice in this kind of way, why can't we, why can't we protest our injustice being done to our migrant laborers. In India, the whole disease has revealed the degree to which most laborers in India are kind of migrant laborers, like they live without their families. Mm -hmm. And and that India has a huge cache of illegal child labor. There was one story where an an NGO, before NGO officials were waiting at a railway platform expecting hundred, expecting to take delivery of hundred child laborers mm-hmm. who were working but who were now trying to come back home. Instead, when the train stopped, five hundred children rolled out. Mm-hmm. And they were not ready for that number. Mm-hmm. They didn't, so this illness, you know, like uh, Mark Block said, remember that when you that a disease is a great opportunity for a historian <laughs> to look at social conflicts. And Absolutely. Like, like Reveals a, everything like a, all at once. Like, like a disease is like a, like a surgical incision on the social body. Yeah, absolutely. Right? absolutely. And uh, so the disease has been revealing the reality of laborers in India. Uh, and, you know, and these realities are often, it would be silly to say that nobody knew about this. But these are facts we conveniently ignore it every day, right? Mm. right? So similarly, the the injustice that the African Americans suffer, or the Hispanics suffer, or the marginal people suffer in America or elsewhere, these are not unknown social secrets. It's just that in everyday life you develop a way of being blind to these things, for sometimes for understandable reasons. I mean, there's a limit to how much one can cope with. Sure. In everyday life. I mean, when you grew up in India, you grew up developing a kind of... I mean, if eyes could be described as having thick skin, <laughs> but your eyes develop a sort of thick skin towards, be- towards beggars. Mm-hmm. You sometimes give them up, you sometimes didn't. Uh, so everyday life presents poverty to you in many different forms. And if you grow up with it, you learn 
not to see it. Not to see. Right. Not to see. That's what you learn. I mean, so often an American friend comes and uh, or an Australian friend comes and uh, is shocked to see how Indians can be indifferent. But, you know, it's like um, the beautiful uh, Baudelaire poem, The Eyes of the Poor, which is just describing this glass-fronted restaurant on a Paris boulevard in the 19th century and 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 the and the couple having dinner, while uh, a, a beggar father and his children are looking in mm-hmm. at the food, mm-hmm. and uh, and and the and the man who faces facing the family is having difficulty averting their eyes. Um, but but when you are in that situation, day and night, you your eyes become glazed; you don't see them. And when these protests, these protests happen, then what they bring out are socially known, but kind of ignored realities. So in India now, the reality of most laborers being migrant, migrancy being the first fact about their lives, mm. is suddenly out in the open through all the indignities and, and, and inhuman, inhuman behavior they've had to put up with, and suddenly the press is reporting. So what I'm saying is it's really that it reminds me of, as a historian, it reminds me of Mark Bloch, mm-hmm. except that when it's when it's black death in Europe and it's happened in the past, you're just, you're, see, you're seeing the, the cut in the social body through parchments and documents. But when it's happening around you, yeah. Uh, the cut has also cut you in, in, in different ways, and let some me, parts of you are bleeding. Let me let me stay with some of these observations you're making about India. I was looking. NPR said this morning there've been seven thousand two hundred confirmed deaths in India as of now. Very small, a, a terrible number, but a small number compared to United mm-hmm. States, for example, or to Italy. Um, That's true. That's yeah. true. Though, though the number of so you have to remember two things: there's, there's the possibility of under-testing and under-reporting. That's what I wanted to ask you about. Right. right. I mean, that's something that people usually make allowance for uh, in a country like India. But in spite of under-testing and under-reporting, the total number is going up. I saw that. So the total officially. So the jump. But the from, lockdown is ended as of so now. The jump, I think. Exactly. So jumped from, in the last few weeks, we jumped from being the ninth worst of country to being the fifth, mm. overtaking Spain, and they're moving up. And Brazil has just announced, uh, I gather that they won't make the coronavirus infection numbers publicly. <laughs> no, they're done reporting, apparently. That's they're one way to deal with it. <laughs> That's one way to deal with it. Yeah, it's you like, expect it. Not, not seeing. <laughs> what a similar move be somehow possible in India? Would be harder. I would think so. Because, yeah. yeah, would be, I mean, would, yeah, I think it would be more difficult. Just given the nature of the press and the media and everything, I mean, however much uh, people might want to control the press, I mean, you can't control it in such detail. Mm-hmm. In, 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 you know, in such a microscopic manner. So I think it'd be harder. They, but the, the government machinery can always understate. Mm. But but when you understate, what you produce, in, but you put into circulation are huge rumors 
about possible actual figures, which right. then get inflated and right. cause other kinds of special problems. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so it's a so understating is a two-edged sword. You know, if governments understate, it's not like people sit quietly. People their imagination run riot. <laughs> Thinking about uh, the actually, I mean, this possible. Sorry. Uh, uh, no, there's thinking also about, the, you know, there has been obviously reporting over these last years about religious minorities and the, you know, what they're facing yeah. in India these days. And it's been confused in the midst of the coronavirus as well, because there have been hotspots among Muslim communities, for example. But yeah, cons- I, mean, I, mean, I mean, what happened was that um, so there was a, a, a kind of conference of a particular group of Muslims. It one particular group of religious organizations mm-hmm. that is spread all over the world, but they had a conference, and a lot of people came from Malaysia and other Muslim mm-hmm. countries. While uh, the corona infection was known, and they were housed together in in one place, and they also they some of the some of the visitors tried to avoid detection. And and they did they did some of them did carry the infection to other places, but but because of the nature of politics in India today, then some people tried to say like blame it all on Muslims. Right, that's what I was wondering how. So it's the way it sort of fed, yeah, the way it fed into the politics was to the yeah. Indian term uh, because the word communal in India means um, not it not it. Um, not what it means in ordinary English, but communal has a his- the word has a historical association and is often used when you're uh, referring to Hindu-Muslim conflicts. Mm. So people would say in India that some people were trying to communalize the problem. Mm. Like, so they were, they were, and a lot of this happens through social media. India is one of the largest users of WhatsApp mm-hmm. and uh, Facebook and all of those things. And a lot of what we today call fake news or just false information is is propagated through this new new social media. Uh, So a lot of, nobody was doing it officially on behalf of a political party, but you would get messages saying, look at what Muslims have done here, Muslims have done there. And and what they do normally is they take a video clip of something else and circulate it as though they're reporting an incident in some other place. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so and that happens a lot. That happens a lot. Mm. Uh, so what happens is, so I think when those when those things happen in democracy, you basically leave your citizenry guessing a lot of the time, being suspicious, suspicious a lot of the time, entertaining doubts about the government a lot of the time. So sometimes political parties that do these things don't realize that, or maybe they do that they're actually undermining. The institutions for democracy. It's not good for a democracy to be to have a large body of citizens being suspicious of the government right. or the so, But but I think I think there's, there's a short-termism in politics both in India and here. And sometimes people just think, will this get to get to the votes in the next election? And when the elections come close, and and India because of the federal structure, so many states, and now it's almost every second year there's an election somewhere. Mm. Um, so political parties are always in the electioneering mode in one part of the country. Or right. Right. Uh, so that so sometimes the, the short termism of politics.
politics gets the better of uh, the long, a long-term view of democracy that one might want to take. Has there been a, a devolution to states through this, or could you expect something like that in, in India, like you've seen in the United States, where the governor of Illinois, for example, governor of California, governor of New Jersey, become and New York become very strong figures in their own right because the federal leadership is either incapable or cynical or both. It's very hard to to really kind of tease that well, out. I mean, the, the federal element in the Indian Constitution is not as strong mm-hmm. as as the federal in the American Constitution. And our governors, the state governors, are more um, kind of figureheads. So they're also appointed by the party that's ruling at the federal level. Right. So sometimes they become uh, very political on behalf of the party that's ruling in Delhi. I see. Other, I see. Otherwise, you don't get a governorship. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Governorship, is, <laughs> governorship is often the prize you get for having been a loyal party follower. I see. I either see. in politics or in the bureaucracy. So it's okay. a prize that's reserved for loyal people. Mm-hmm. So, so, so the federal structure, and yeah, there's a lot of discussion about whether the federal structure should be different or not, but that's a different story. So I want to come to, um, so many things to ask you about, I, but I want to come actually to a piece you wrote not long ago, because um, right. I think it gets into broader issues here about globalization, um, in which you're such a leading thinker. And, and I just want to give a little quote from it. You say, it is as if the connected and global world is suddenly wary of all its connections and cannot move fast enough to disconnect, even if only temporarily, all because a tiny form of semi-life, a virus, the coronavirus, that we cannot even see, but that threatens human life precisely because many humans in pursuit of profit, power, and prosperity have converted this earth into a technologically connected globe. So it's a big question, but I'd like to have your sense of it. What is coronavirus revealing about globalization in this moment? So, um, so I mean, one place to start might be uh, this book called Vital Storm by a virologist, Nathan Wolf, mm-hmm. who used to teach at Stanford and now actually runs his own center from L.A., and uh, it's an interesting book because he's in the business of predicting pandemics, but obviously they couldn't with right. this one. You know? right. uh, but he's in the business of developing models for predicting pandemics as part of global disaster management. Right. Uh, but he, but this book is interesting. It was published around 2012, I think. And uh, and because he's also worked as an evolutionary biologist or worked with evolutionary biologists like Jared Diamond and people. Um, I've read the book and I've also taught some of his more academic writings to a graduate seminar I just finished teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing I learned from him was that, um, and this goes back to human history, but a long-term human history. So he was saying that uh, that uh, when humans domesticated animals or animals domesticated humans, whatever, it's a two-way right. process, um, viruses did jump from these animals being domesticated to humans and caused epidemics and pandemics. Uh, but over 5,000 years, so if this all happened right at the beginning of the agricultural revolution, like 10,000, mm-hmm. 11,000 years ago, he says that, but that in 5,000 years' time, 
these new viruses and humans came to some kind of equilibrium. So it's still possible for you to get something from your dog that kills you. But it's very unlikely that that will become a pandemic. So therefore, since in the last 5,000 years, when we've had pandemics, it's mostly to do with uh, viruses or bacteria jumping species mm. from wildlife to us. And um, <clears throat> I mean, when the coronavirus was becoming global, even the, um, um, uh, the person, woman, whose name escapes me now, something Anderson, who heads up the environment section of United Nations, mm. also statements saying, look, this is a call coming to us from nature, and it's really about what we're doing to nature. And something that becomes clear reading Nathan Wolf, but reading all sorts of stuff, is that um, in many different ways, humans are in contact with wildlife, have been over the last several hundred years. Some of it actually for um, medical research reasons. So even, I mean, even today, we try to, the wildlife we use in medical research procedures, we try to breed them in universities and research institutions. Right. And the numbers are huge, how many we actually breed. Mm. Uh, and without them, you wouldn't get the vaccines, you wouldn't get the, right. the, the medicines you need. So actually, in, but, but at the same time, what, is, what has gone up is our tendency to destroy habitat of wildlife. And that's been that's been to do with um, many different things, partly to partly to do with business like mining, timber logging, mm -hmm. um, cutting down forests to create farming, uh, but also road building and housing for humans. I mean, I mean, India, you see cities are expanding and building houses where leopards used. Right. So very interesting. The outside of Mumbai or Bombay, what is used Bombay. Leopards are trying to see if domestic dogs can become their prey. Really? Pet dogs. So they come into multi-story buildings sometimes. If they see right. a little dog there. And yeah, they, you know, if you go on YouTube, you'll find some of these uh, videos from the CCTV cameras uh -huh. showing a big cat coming in and then running out. Uh, mm. It's fascinating what happens then. The leopards hate the street the street dogs operate in a gang, they alert everybody that the leopard is around. Right. <laughs> so, right. so suddenly the, the street dogs that everybody hated have become our friends. Yeah. <laughs> Saving, in effect, the pet dog. Yeah. Leopard <laughs> patrol. Leopard patrol, yeah. The leopard yeah. patrol, exactly. Yeah. But anyway, the, going back to Nathan Wood. So he did some ethnographic work in, in Cameroon. And where he actually documents that, um, so the local people who used to... Um, uh, kill apes, uh, chimps, I think, um, basically used to do their hunting in a circle around the village. But when somebody builds a road, they take advantage of the road to travel deeper mm -hmm. into the country and then uh, go sideways from the road to hunt. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, the, the, sometimes they've also sold bush meat as food to the laborers who are working on the road. Right. So in, so in so basically we are out of either desire for profit or for development, we are pushing into 
the territories that are occupied by wildlife. See, as it is, what's happened in history is um, we've done something to, to vertebrate life. So people now say that uh, if you take the total biomass of vertebrates, then humans and the animals we keep either to farm, to eat, or, you know, together make up about 95% of the biomass among vertebrates. Mm -hmm. Only 5% are really wild animals. Right. Like elephants. Just a few days ago, a pregnant elephant died in India. She went inside a pond because she was in terrible, terrible agony. You know why? Because animals are coming into farmland, into agricultural land, to eat crops and things. Mm -hmm. And farmers uh, fill up pumpkins with firecrackers. To scare them away. No, to hurt them. Mm -hmm. So there are wild boars going around who are dying from completely blown up faces. And this and elephants also come into the farmland because they're losing habitat and they need so much to eat. And this pregnant elephant came and ate one of these pumpkins. And she was in so much pain that she ran into a water. And over a few days she agonized. She was in awful pain and died. Now the point that Nathan Wolf makes, and the, the United Nations official was also making, is that our contact with wildlife, for many different reasons, is increasing, and perhaps increasing more than it should. The other thing that happens in, in, in the case of China, in China, South China, there's a tradition of eating wildlife, because South China, the wildlife is also more varied. But... Uh, but at the same time, as people come into money, what used to be exotic food right. and only accessible perhaps to uh, the aristocracy or the rich or the privileged uh, becomes everybody's object of desire. Right. And then you have this um, series of, we have them in India too, the places called the wet markets, where you actually bring different wildlife, different animals together and you cut them there so that their blood then mix. And the other thing that uh, also happens is that the transportation of these uh, animals and birds when they're brought to the market to be slaughtered, they're brought under conditions of extreme stress. And when animals are under stress, they exude pathogens. Right. So, um, so you know, it, it all this reminds me of... Um, the point that many people are making that we're destroying biodiversity in different ways. And biodiversity is essential for complex life and therefore essential for our life. Uh, many people, scientists have made the, uh, made the proposal that we should consider, like, uh, like gas and oil, we should consider biodiversity to be a non-renewable resource. Mm -hmm. Because it takes millions of years to actually recover, to destroy mm -hmm. And uh, Edward uh, Wilson, the famous uh, evolutionary biologist, he, with his book on Half Earth, he actually recommends that there are 140,000 national parks in the world, that at least there we allow the old biodiversity to come back because 
humans have introduced invasive species sometimes through selective cutting mm. and uh, and sometimes when you go for a particular kind of wood and a particular pine let's say and you cut that pine you sometimes take out of the biodiversity the one species that could have been a capstone species a really mm-hmm. important mm-hmm. species that held the area together and when you take that out you really destroy the you disturb the situation and other things happen so his argument is let's just at least restore these species right. even just the national parks right so the, so the point i'm making is that the expansion of our of our global economy which has on the one hand resulted in more people being out of poverty more people being middle class more people being consumers and and things we have felt good about generally has also had this underside right of uh, exposing ourselves to these viruses and bacteria and and from what i've read the coronavirus which is like other coronaviruses is a special type of coronavirus but but um sometimes they've lived in uh, guts of bats for millions of years mm-hmm. so what what we have done i mean if you if you look at it through darwin darwinian eyes uh, and and think of it as not just concerning us but history of life then we have become the vehicle for the virus to get global so in 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 some ways we might win the battle uh the present battle with coronavirus but i think it's already won the war i want to i want to expand on that one. first of all to 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 point about the um somehow creating spaces on earth where we can allow biodiversity very rich biodiversity i was recently um had the opportunity to visit the dmz uh, the edge of it well you did wow yeah and um you know this is the world's largest um eco i mean they even present it now as an eco park it's not one you can go into because oh, it has more landmines than anywhere else in the world too so i so i did Yeah, there it is um and it is this and there's cranes and other kinds of birds and but also uh, plant plant you know uh diversity as well in this in this space it's just to your point that and how deeply ironic that this space of war because no one can go into it i mean it's the ultimate anthropocene space yeah. and i wanted to come to that concept because because right. i know it's one you've written about and and the climate of history and Yeah, and that's what Anna Singh wrote about in the Wild Mushroom. Yeah, right, exactly. These these destroyed and forgotten spaces, which then find biodiversity remediation because humans are barred from them, or they've barred themselves from them. But it it you comes know, I, to the I, I, yeah. Sorry, right. carry on. No, no. no well, I, the I just wanted to one of the signal points you have been writing about is. trying to understand the implications for doing much deeper history of these kind of observations you're making now and one of them is to to really to really joust with the old human and natural divide yeah. which we the enlightenment hands down to us in a sense and says here you go humans um you know we we've, we've got these accomplishments 
<laughs> yeah, and I've, I've been recently thinking about the title of this uh, interesting book by a sociologist, well known now in the in, uh, in the circles where Anthropocene is debated uh, in the social sciences, Jason Moore and his book called Capitalism and the Web of Life. And the Web of Life is an expression he takes from Darwin, I think. But I've been recently thinking that the Web of Life is what Darwin would think of as life with a capital L. It's, it's life that survives extinction. It's life that continues. It's life mm-hmm. that has one, you know, that's been here for 3.5 billion years. Capitalism, what capitalism has colonized is not life in general, but our social life. Mm-hmm. And, and, and which includes some animal life, because some animals are part of our social right. well-being. Right. Either animals we use for medicine, medical research, or animals we keep or love or whatever. Biopolitics in Foucault's terms. Mm-hmm. And um, so what has happened, what, what, what we have allowed to happen, what, what else could we do, that we have allowed every pore of our social life to be now connected to the economy so that somebody makes profit out of either the smallest of your emotions when you buy a card to give to somebody wishing them something, mm. or uh, you know, like, or even a thing like laptop, uh, the cell phone. Uh, you can see how commodities are coming into the most intimate physical space, spaces. Mm. So when the laptop was invented, it was invented as a computer that you could take to bed. Right. And 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 and. And the iPhone or the smartphone has now taken that place where you take to bed, you wake up in the middle of the night to see if there's a message, mm-hmm. uh, feel connected. But, but at this commodification of our social life, mm. uh, which has also uh, allowed, which is part of being a consumer in, 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 in capitalist society, um, means that we now enjoy our social life globally by traveling, by for business, for pleasure, for other things. So if the coronavirus hadn't happened, if the pandemic hadn't happened, we would have thought we would have been singing praise of this social life where the, the, the movement for migration, the movement from cosmopolitanism, the fight against racism, the immigrants' rights, these would have been the discourses. Mm-hmm. But, but this virus reminds us that our social life can be extremely vulnerable to life with capital L. Mm. When the agent of that life precisely wants us to be social and mobile at the same time. Right. Social, crowded, and mobile. So, uh, so you know, uh, David Quammen, who is a science writer who also has written about pandemics in a book called Spillover, he quotes a biologist who who says to him that if if humans were an insect species and if the number of that insect species went up on a proportional scale as quickly as human numbers did mm. and and that insect was spread all over the globe or a very large area in biological terms you would call that a breakout mm. and a breakout of the, of the an outbreak of the of the of the insect population Mm-hmm. And humans are now like the insect population, right? Right. right. Large in numbers, crowded, very mobile, and an extremely effective vehicle for this virus. 
so so if you so so what i'm saying is that we need to if you want to think about the situation you can see history happening at different levels and almost flowing in different layers uh, or uh, like if you if you think of a viscous liquid a mixed liquid some mm-hmm. some parts of it traveling faster mm-hmm. so there's a human story of a, a man in in a wuhan restaurant infecting certain tables not infecting others and that traveling to italians blah, blah. the story of globalization global industry italians were there because they got factories there in china all of those things and then there's the story of human contact with wildlife at the limit of our social life and then there's the story of how if you look at it from the virus's point of view it's been living there in bat its host reservoir as it's called in bat bodies for millions of years bats have been around for 50 million years much older species than humans and and in a darwinian world every little living thing and its group is trying to survive and trying to create the best conditions for its survival and we suddenly become agents right. giving it right. the best conditions right for right its, for its survival so uh, so there are two ways to go the the harder way is to think okay let's it's to think what edward wilson or uh, bill mckeepen uh, these kind of people are talking about saying just withdraw we've expanded too much this economy has right. gone too far withdraw that's harder to do because you know you not just only expand you give jobs people get employed sure the easier thing is to have more of the business and it looks like an easier option mm-hmm. so easier option would be say would be to say okay let's let's not give up on capitalism but create a global disaster management system right a disaster predicting system so put more throw more money at the problem yeah. get the pharmaceutical companies involved research institutions involved give big research grants so that so that you will keep having more of the same in order to deal with problems that your expansion creates in the first place this is the technological fix right and that's unfortunately the beast we seem to be riding because it's the easier beast to ride in in a short yeah. term from a short term point of view right it it's the least disruptive so there's a so even with the pandemic you can see that people many people i don't blame them psychologically sometimes assume that life is on a temporary state of hold that we've suspended temporarily we're going to go back to what we had right you don't i mean i sometimes call it a nostalgia for the future you know you don't see this you don't think it's because i think it's going to be also changed in many different ways you know i think air travel is going to be different at least for some time to come unless there's a rapid development of a vaccine but but that's the gamble we are that's a technological fix so yeah, exactly. if it's a technological fix then we go back and we keep expanding mm-hmm. until the next pandemic until the next right <laughs> until the next catastrophe so um, and you know i mean no system can go on infinitely producing catastrophes <laughs> along the way but on the other hand it from a very short term point of view it's the, it's the least disruptive option but let me ask you something about that that 
that I've been concerned about, and it comes back to where we started our discussion about the the disparity, the, the different rhetorics of the disaster, the the epidemiolo- epidemiological one, statistical one versus the personal one. Right. Um, I do worry that we um, we're very good at normalizing risk. You talked about the thickening of the skin of the eyes. Right. Uh, it's and and it's not just an individual cognitive issue, or psychological issue, or risk management. It's it, it's it's also about societies building instruments that allow us to systematically normalize risk, um, and that 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 is also part of this easier path you're talking about, which is to say, and you even seen this in the discussion of climate change that says, well, in the short run, let's the move short-run. past denial and say, yes, it's coming. And it's right. just going to be the way it is, and so we'll just we'll adapt in these various ways. And if poor people or people in in other countries have to deal with it in a harsher way, we're very sorry about that. We'll try to provide some instruments, monetary instruments, but this normalization is that's what I was saying. That that this um, the uh, you know the, the the language of war is collateral damage. Mm-hmm. Uh, which really, I personally think of it as a language that speaks of a certain process of making our hearts insensitive. It, it, it's a training that comes from technology, from the situation where you press a button and a bomb drops. It really comes from a situation where you don't deal with suffering yourself. And suffering happens to some distant people. Um, that language has come into social policy, uh, and I think that's. Um, I can only think of it as a cancer of democracy. Because if democracies were really decentralized, if democracies depended on rich community life. The closer you are to the people who are actually going to bear the brunt of that suffering, the less able you are to talk about collateral damages, because the collateral damage could right. be your wife, collateral damage could be your spouse, right. could be your children, could be your father. And I think the very fact that we can speak and make policies in those terms show that we are, that even the large-scale integration we are doing of societies and nations through these economies, there's something fundamentally wrong with that. And there's something mm. fundamentally undemocratic mm. about democracies that actually don't depend on on rich communal lives at the local level. Right. Um, but that's that's the structure we're inhabiting. I mean, the, the, that that insensitivity is already around us. It's it's part of the institutions we inhabit. It's it's part of management philosophy and everything. I mean, so sure. when you have big structures, people become numbers. When you have numbers, it, it becomes easier to deal with. Then you say, okay, as I was saying, people would say in India, ten million die every year, so one million more is just a blip, not yeah. huge. Right. Well, we've heard that rhetoric and, in the U.S. as well about older folks. Well, they were close to yeah, they're close elected to officials anyway. who said so, these things. Right. Yeah. No, no, I mean, I'm just saying, and I'm not blaming anybody because that's, it, it, the bizarre thing is that these things sound rational. Right. So I'm not, 
I'm not denying that these are rational positions to take. What allows you to take such rational positions, what makes such rational positions meaningful, is the fact that you have structures that are too big for human beings. Right. Um, and, and without those huge structures, you wouldn't be able to have such military-industrial complexes, such the unevenness of power in the world, all of those things. So in, in the end, to me, they speak of uh, a real canker of democracy. You know how far we have come, and it's become a matter of managing scales. And uh, but at the same time, as a practical person, I don't recommend disruption of this. But disruption also means immediate suffering mm -hmm. for everybody. So it's it's a it's a beast right. that's very hard very hard to get off. And but I I mention this, and sometimes I go across different scales of time, partly because as a humanist you know, and not as an activist or a policy person, I'm not, neither. What I try to do is to communicate the depth of the predicament that yeah. marks the human, that marks the human condition. Well, let me remind folks, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Deepesh Chakrabarti today, and, and we've had a very rich conversation and traveled around the world as I knew we would. I, I want to get one more question in. We're almost up on time, but it is exactly to this point. And it's really to your, you were just saying, you didn't use the term method, but I will. And even in our conversation a moment ago, I don't know if you're conscious of how you tell stories. You, I think you are. Um, but you're simultaneously, we were following the flow of electronics which is to say rare earths and plastics and yeah, glass absolutely. and various things. You're also talking to us about a bat's gut and a virus and a human and a plane. Um, and you were charting all of those as in simultaneous, in a simultaneous exploration of a world, which is creating, inheriting and creating a new History and my my question to you. So first of all, I mean, as a historian, that's a very complicated set of tasks to do because usually, as historians, we work with written records uh, preserved by us for brilliant people we call archivists, whom we adore, and they say, "Here's the archive." We say, "Thank you so much," and we go in and we come out later and we have a book. Okay, you're describing something much different from a methodological perspective, and. But at the same time, I feel like you're also saying that if we want to take this harder path or if we want to explore these harder policies, we need those histories. We need this mode of examination. But we're very unaccustomed to telling histories this way. I, I mean, it's, it's a Thanks. difficult set of tasks that you've laid out for us. And I wonder if you could just reflect on that a little bit. I think younger generations of historians, I know because I meet them and I'm impressed with them because they do this sort of multi-species, human and inhuman telling, richness of an archival record that doesn't fit into a conventional archive. There are people out there doing this work right now. I think it will. I think we're at a turn. I think we're at an inflection point. But still, people are learning by doing in this space, don't you think? Yeah, no, totally. So first of all, thank you for... Um, for alerting me to something that others have also 
remarked uh, on about me, which is that I do tell stories. And, and anecdotes and stories are part of my repertoire because I think they help to bring a point home and, and also they help to humanize the point. But, but at the same time, um, there are two things to say to in response to your question, short term and long term. In the short term, uh, I can speak. I can speak to my own experience that I read literature, which are kind of very large scale histories that I'm not equipped to do. Sure. So the problem I have as a professional person reading that literature is that uh, is this problem: how do I evaluate if this is good research or bad research? So I have to read around that a fair amount to see if I have a sense of the standing of the person, the consensus around their work in their field, to see if, okay, if I can accept some of their findings. And also you have to remember always that if you're reading professional papers in a field which requires different kind of training, you don't get all of it. So it's very important to check what you're understanding through with somebody in the profession and say, okay, can I just say this? And would I be mm-hmm. horrendously sort of you know, silly in saying this? Um, the other thing is that some of these people who write uh, for, for an educated uh, readership from their own specialist backgrounds, they themselves will tell you that their professional colleagues would get irritated by what they wrote. And you can imagine as a historian that there might be, you know, some fine-grained debate in your field, and if somebody didn't mention that debate and said something, and the professor right. said, they didn't mention, <laughs> there's a problem with <laughs> yeah, that. Of course. And that yeah. happens. <laughs> that happens. That happens. So you have to be aware of that that kind of imperfection in your knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to be aware that the fact that cross-disciplinary uh, communication requires sometimes some simplification, but but the way I try to use it, so I, do, I don't use these things as my research, but I use them as perspectives that bear on the documentary research that I'm qualified. Right. So what happens is that, <clears throat> so to give you a quick example, Bengal had a huge famine in uh, 1943 during the war. There's a very interesting book on it called Churchill's Famine. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of it was made by British policy and everything. So socialist uh, photographer, particular socialist photographer used to go around taking photos of <clears throat> human dead bodies, almost skeletal, being eaten or nibbled at by a dog equally skeletal mm-hmm. or vultures congregating somewhere. And in socialist humanism, the animal, the presence of the animal doing this to the human was a measure of the fall of the human. So the, so the humanist message was, see how far man has fallen. But now when you go back and you realize the dog was as starved and as skeletal right. as the dead man, right? So you suddenly realize that the famine, wars, firestorms, tsunamis, they just don't destroy human lives. They destroy other lives. Mm-hmm. And those other lives have implications for our lives. Implications mm-hmm. that your fellow documentary historian may not be able to tell you, but a biologist might be able to tell you. Right. So, 
so at the moment, I think we're in a phase where we go to these disciplines to acquire perspectives. But looking longer term, I wouldn't be surprised if eventually collaborative team research would happen. Mm. And you might have streams where uh, students get different kinds of training in, in multidisciplinary things. I think uh, the luxury that humanity scholars have, which is increasingly an expensive luxury, uh, which is not having any uh, acquaintance with mathematical tools, will become more and more expensive because uh, mm. you see what's happening in other disciplines, they're basically dealing with big data. Yeah. And, and big data sets are kind of maneuvered by using mathematical tools. I mean, that's how you scale them down. And if we have no sense of um, what scientists do or mathematicians do, that will become difficult. That will become an obstacle. And see, at the moment, there's a mental block. So if I teach a class on the Anthropocene, and if I start with the science of the Anthropocene, the number of people who enroll in the class immediately goes down. Right. But if, right. I, if, I, if I begin with a debate about, is this Anthropocene or capitalism? <laughs> And everybody understands capitalism, and everybody thinks that's a big yeah, bad yeah, monster yeah. we're all sure. against. Then the numbers stay stays up, and we go into the week when they can't change their minds anymore. And then I can say, okay, now here's some compulsory science. <laughs> 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 I'm joking, <laughs> but you know, future, students, are like, future <laughs> students take notes. Students are much better than that. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, no, I know what you mean. I know exactly you know what, what you mean. What, you, know what, sure. you know what I mean. Yeah. You know what I mean. There's the people come into the humanities because they've had, in part, some resistance yeah. to understanding the world mathematically or scientifically. Yeah. And I think that that resistance won't do humanist good mm. in the long run. I, I'm a deeply a humanist person. And I, I love the humanities because I always say that, look, um, the sciences and the policy people and economists solve problems that are solvable. But we think about problems that we all face that which are not solvable, like aging, coming into sexuality, dealing with people who are obviously more powerful than you and who deal with you with the knowledge that they're more powerful <laughs> at that moment. And we all encounter, and I said, it's the humanities that will give you a repertoire of examples right. <laughs> from, from novels, from films, to historical experiences that help you think through all that. And that's why you still go back and read Marcus Aurelius or you know, Plato or, or the classical stoics. So I'm a, I'm a deeply humanities person, but I think given the nature of the environmental crisis that's upsetting our lives, and if we want to contribute as humanities people, and I think what one of the things we can do is to give people some sense of what I was calling the depth of the predicament, how difficult the predicament is, how the easy solutions are solutions to some degree, but not, they don't solve everything. Uh, and that's what we can do. But in order to do that, we need to venture out into the other disciplines and get and enrich our perspective so that we can think on a multi-scalar, in a multi-scalar way. So that, and I always say to my students that, you know, thinking about the planet doesn't mean that you don't think about the individual that E.P. Thompson was concerned. Mm -hmm. So that individual is you. Is me, and you're in front of me. I mean, the planet is not in front of me. Mm. And if I and if I can't care for the for the entity that's in front of me, I mean, what kind of caring can I have for 
that which is not in front of you. Mm. So, so it's not a matter of forgetting the person of everyday life, but it's a matter of placing them in this shifting context. I think that's where we're going to leave it for today. Uh, what a Thank what a very rich exploration of these ideas and 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 in this immediacy of this of this time, I think it also speaks to the need, just as you're saying, that, you know, we have things that we have to do that are right in front of us, but we also have the ability to think about longer, longer term. And that's what historians are meant to be doing, I think. Um, so I want to thank Dipesh Chakrabarti uh, so much for your time today and, okay. and to remind folks that you can catch COVID calls every weekday, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And tomorrow we'll have the second of our um, weekly uh, discussions with Academy of Natural Sciences um, staff and scientists. And tomorrow we're actually going to be, it's going to be, we're going to get to look inside the Academy. The Academy has been closed um, for months, and but we're going to get a look inside. So um, we're going to talk about how the collections have been preserved during this very difficult time of the pandemic. Dipesh, great to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Stay healthy, and we'll catch everybody soon on COVID calls. Thanks. Thanks.